DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Candid Conversations. Disability Dis- done different, Candid Conversations. It's not that hard, Dad. Okay. Thanks, Evie. Um, that's the name. And welcome, Evie. Welcome, Dad. And welcome today to Brent Woolgar, one of our star consultants, our principal consultant, expert in all things specialist disability accommodation, SDA, and support and independent living, SIL, which means housing. He knows about housing and he's going to talk to us a bit about housing. He's going to talk to us about engineering, about being a parent of twins, one of whom has a disability, and about being an all-round expert, good guy, engineer, and Aussie bloke. (laughs) You were so close to doing a good intro. (laughs) That was good. Welcome, Brent. Hi, guys. How are you today? Terrific. So I, I wanted to kick off, Brent, with how come you've got the only non-air-conditioned car in Queensland? (laughs) Uh, Yes. So, as you mentioned, the engineering background has afforded me a pretty strong passion to all things mechanical. Um, That's the type of engineering that I came from. And when I was facing the challenge of what sort of vehicle that was accessible for my son, Nathaniel, who has uh, cerebral palsy, I just couldn't bring myself to buy the the white van, um, a bit cliche for disability transport. So I was watching television one weekend uh, with Nathaniel and the rest of the family, and there was a, a story about a couple of guys that had bought some combis. Uh, I think it was on the far north coast of New South Wales, and they were refitting them for uh, disability day trips, and that uh, started the the mission. So we went out, bought a old decrepit combi and uh, put the engineer's hat on and four years later have the uh, what Nate calls his rock star van. So that's how that came about. Am I remembering correctly, Brent? Have you souped up the exhaust on that van? Uh, I may have. So (laughs) it it kind of sounds like a Harley Davidson. Um, (laughs) But again, it's it's sort of embracing the inner bogan, I guess. So it automatically leads us into one of the questions Evie was wanting to talk to you about, Brent, which is she asked you a while ago on our internal Slack channel, could you just tell us a little bit about the AT that you've got going on in your house? AT, assistive technology. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So uh, obviously we're based in Queensland and Nathaniel's been an NDIS participant now for coming up on a couple of years. At the start of our journey with the NDIS uh, assistive technology to make the house a little bit more independent and safe for Nathaniel was very much one of the top priorities for us. It was about 80% of the way there, but there were still some niggling bits and pieces that we could change. So anyway, so we got some funding in his first plan and we engaged an uh, assistive technology expert who came out and um, it's quite funny, we were standing on the driveway looking at the house after he'd had a bit of a look around and his first comment was, why don't you move? And I was like, wow, this is, this is very progressive. Um, so you guys know me, that that went down really well. And so we had a, <laughs> had a further conversation 
couple of months later, I get a quote for just under $60,000 to, um, to achieve what we wanted to achieve by this particular method, which involved quite a lot of modifications to the house. I didn't think that was really the appropriate solution. So I embarked on a, a frantic Google frenzy of finding out what assistive technology was out there in the market. Probably three, four months after that, we, um, we pretty much finished everything that we wanted to achieve. We did it for about $4,000, um, including a seizure alert system that, that's proven to be pretty good, um, as well as controlling um, climate, lighting, security, uh, etc. So, And almost all off-the-shelf uh, products, wasn't it, Brent? Yeah, everything off-the-shelf. Um, Nate's day-to-day uh, -day sort of interface with his home, if you like, is all controlled either through his iPhone or his Apple Watch. So right down to um, the seizure alert system is driven from an Apple Watch application. So everything came from uh, Mix of Bunnings and JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman and all those sort of types of shops, but nothing um, specialist, if you like, or commercial <laughs> off the shelf. $4,000, and it was a combination of nine apps and, and pieces of various hardware, right? And it's been yeah. an inspiration to you, hasn't it, Evie? I just want to jump in here because you've been inspired to talk about a website. So talk a little bit about that website because I know part of it comes from what Brent's done. Well, one of the things that I love most about this story, um, Brent, you know, <laughs> I feel like I've told this story more times than you have because I like it so much. And one of the details I, I don't think you mentioned then was that when the NDIS first rolled out, the first thing your family did was get support workers uh, for that sort of after school period for Nate and that he hated it you know, being, I think he's 17 or 18 years old now that he didn't want these support workers around. And that was such an interesting perspective for me because, you know, from within a service provision context, we often just kind of come with the assumption that the more support you're funded for, the more support you get, the better. And that was just a great little, no, no, that's not the case for everybody. And, and of course it's not when you really think about it. Um, and so I just loved the story of how assistive tech actually gave Nate so much more independence than a person could. No, and I was just, I was going to sort of reiterate that story. Um, so we had all the assistive technology up and running. And again, we did all that ourselves. Um, so it's all pretty much um, pretty easy to navigate. We're certainly not IT geniuses and we managed to get it all working and uh, would have been within a couple of weeks. And Nate afforded him the ability to start arriving home from school. He was in grade 12 at that point in time. Uh, independently let himself into the house, um, switch on what needed to be switched on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this particular afternoon, um, because we didn't have a support worker at Nate's request, uh, I arrived home and where Nate sort of hangs out after school to do his homework was just inside the door that leads in from the garage. So I get home, stroll through the door and just casually glance at him and the usual, you know, everything all good. He goes, yeah, Dad, everything's all good. And it was just the classic double take because something just didn't look right on that first glance. And I so I, I turn around a second time and he's sitting there in his wheelchair, absolutely stark naked, this huge <laughs> smile on his face. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on here? And he, he just looks at me and he goes, you know, Dad, this is the first time I'm I've able to be naked on my own. And I thought, mm. wow, that's just... Uh -huh incredible and it really 
for me reinforced you know that um that yen for privacy and your own time and for nate i've never appreciated that you know he's very rarely had he been to the bathroom on his own so you know some of the most intimate of things for a young man was always with someone else so yeah i think as an outcome of assistive technology you can't get much better than that Mm, it really spoke to me that story about the power of assistive technology and simple technologies you know like as you said you're not an at expert and the at experts didn't come up with the solution for you that there were these simple off-the-shelf smart home products that could just deliver me time for somebody and that we often don't think of me time as being um you know the, the goal that we should be working towards and i think what also was shown to me through your story brent is that there's not a lot of people in the ndis who actually have the incentive to um to create the kind of solution you did because the service providers who are being paid to deliver the services are not likely to go, Hey, did you know, instead of paying us, you know, X thousand dollars every year, you could pay 4k to, you know, be at home by yourself instead. Uh, you know, a lot of support coordinators are busy enough doing everything to you know, necessarily know of, or even recognize that the AT people obviously have an incentive to push people towards, you know, more expensive solutions. I mean, I know everyone's got ethical practices to not, to not oversell, but that kind of smart home technology, just simple mainstream products. It struck me that there's a bit of a gap in the market there of who would be supporting people to identify, um, you know, what might work for them. And so that's, you know, dad just mentioned before that I was thinking about putting together a website, but I know, you know, Sam Payoff from the growing space has done a lot of work in helping to crowdsource um, different things that people have purchased with their low cost assistive tech funding out of core. And it just struck me that there's an opportunity to, to get all the people like you, like Nate, who have been finding these solutions for themselves and trying to find some kind of central place to put those. So, yeah, I think it's a brilliant idea. It's, um, and it's ironic because when we were setting it up and if we came to a particular issue that we weren't sure of, um, again, the good old Google search, but there's all these, um, oh, I don't know what you call them, like user groups, online chat rooms, et cetera, um, around each particular brand of product. So if you're having a problem with a camera, you go onto a, a chat room or a forum around that particular camera and all these people that have been using it and setting it up with their solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a way to centralize that sort of information for our sector um, would be incredibly powerful. Even the work I know you did with like Alexa and Google Homes, trying a bunch of them to see which would best work with Nate's speech patterns, like being able to share some yeah. of that experimentation would be so valuable. So really interesting um, event a couple of months ago. So talking to a group of people at a um, disability service provider and one of those had been to um, one of the courses that Sal and I ran last year around um, housing options within the NDIS. And she was really quite um, agitated, I guess, initially when she, when she spoke to me. And it was around, um, so I mentioned earlier that Nate uses a seizure alert application on his apple watch and she almost accused me of being um negligent uh for Mm. the well-being of of nate because i was relying on this um apple watch application and whatever and it was just like i think some of that um misinformation is what drives this 
push for assistive technology. It has to come in this really shiny box and it has to come from this um, very unique organization and it's got to cost $60,000. Otherwise it's crap and it's just not the case. So the, the application, um, the seizure applications out there have both been developed by leading universities in America and they've got extensive um, testing and refinement and, you know, constant updates. And so I do think a lot of the issues or the challenges we face in assistive technology to embrace the stuff that's just commercial off the shelf technology is there's this bit of fear mongering going on that, you know, well, would you trust the life of your child with something that you bought from Harvey Norman? And it's just like, well, yes, yes, I would. What, what sits underneath yeah. this, Brent, the need to overcomplicate it? So I'm not going to make any friends here, but I don't mind. I, I work for a big vision impairment organisation, one of the biggest in Australia, and they were $3 million into a $5 million development of a, a talking book program. And the iPad was well into development there. And the iPad and Audible talked to you. We didn't need to spend <laughs> another $2 million developing proprietary hardware that had to be sent out to vision-impaired people, proprietary talking yep. books that had to be sent out to... But people wouldn't acknowledge that it was out there. And we just kept on spending the next sets of philanthropically funded mm. millions of stupid dollars. And the other one yeah, is yeah. I, I worked with a bunch of specialist OTs, probably one or two of them are listening, working in assistive technology that would come up with incredibly complex solutions for people, then not be available to support them, and they would always sit in cupboards. Very expensive yeah. solutions that sit in cupboards. Why do we need to overcomplicate shit that doesn't work? <laughs> well, I think it, it is that classical story of, of the IT project that's developed by an organisation where IT is not their core business, you know, and there's, there's so many case studies, you know, all the way from the Australian federal government through to, you know, small mum and dad organisations that have this idea about, you know, we can automate something or we can come up with this brilliant IT system to do something and it'll make us all millionaires or it'll make our life better, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you speak to people that are IT experts and um, IT project managers and you say, right, what project are you working on? And project XYZ, original budget was a million dollars and we're now up to $4 million. Um, you know, just time and time again, and that's the experts. So I, a mentor I worked with many years ago basically said, if you're not an IT expert, your organisation should not be developing IT projects and that's really just stayed with me forever and I, I, I believe in that very strongly. Yeah, that's, that's what Roland always says. Anytime I say I want to develop software, he says, over my dead body. Okay. <laughs> DSC will not be developing IT anytime soon. I want to take this conversation somewhere slightly different, Brent, which is to the topic of SDA. And while we're talking about, you know, how a built environment can influence how somebody is able to live in their home, I wondered if you could share some of the stories you have, Brent, about the robust category of SDA and the difference that the built environment can mean for somebody whose house fits into that kind of category. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as you know, robust is generally the category of, of SDA that a participant would be found eligible for if they generally have psychosocial behavioural um, challenges that they're, that they're facing and in line with all things SDA, it's usually the people towards the very extreme end, um, and that's the NDIS's language, extreme functional impairment, that 
um, will be eligible for the funding. So you're looking at a cohort of people that have, I won't, I don't like the term challenging behaviours, but they have behaviours that for a lot of people are difficult to understand what's driving those behaviours. In a lot of cases, and there hasn't been a lot of research in it, but there's, there's a bit out there from around the world researching how the built environment can influence behaviours in, um, in that cohort of people. And it, it, the small amount of research that's been done previously, there is absolute direct correlation um, because quite often people have behavioural triggers that are associated with smell, you know, with the five senses effectively. So for one person, um, the trigger might be a pattern or a colour. Um, for another person, it might be an environmental noise. Um, for another person, it might be a smell or a texture or, or something like that. Um, so understanding that fundamental driver behind a person's behaviour and then building an environment around that person as best you can to eliminate those triggers obviously results in a fantastic outcome for the person because you're reduce, reducing those environmental triggers to a point where hopefully the incident of, of behaviours reduces, um, which means the incidence of or the need for person-to-person -person support reduces, which is kind of then becomes this um, continual momentum, if you like, that the person's behaviours are improving and less support, and quite often the support is also one of the triggers for the behaviour. So you just get this sort of perpetuating improvement in people. And we've seen that in a couple of the early robust projects that um, have been done well uh, since the SDA funding has been made available. But I do have to say that out of all of the categories of SDA, uh, robust is, is the one where there is probably the least supply. And I think if you think back to how SDA is constructed, they put together a pricing scheme that's better than a market return to attract private investment. Um, to deliver, you know, billions of dollars of, of disability accommodation. There's one story in particular I'd love you to tell, Brent, the one about the water. Ah, oh, yeah, right. Um, so this particular young gentleman loves water, um, doesn't particularly like wearing clothes, even if it is um, freezing outside. And when I first got introduced to this gentleman, his support environment or his world, if you like, with two security guards and two support workers 24 seven. So um, he'd been in the justice system, in and out of the justice system, homeless, you know, the unfortunately not unusual story for, for people with extreme behaviors. So in this particular case, the built environment that was created for this gentleman involved an outdoor, um, pool very shallow so that there could be no um, increased risks with a lower level of, of supervision and a very and that pool was three meters by three meters and then inside the house in the bathroom there was a very similar pool that was two meters by two meters and so for a vast majority of the day um, this young man would circulate between the inside pool and the outside pool depending on temperature and what was happening um, and last time I checked in, uh, he was down to um, 
no more security and at times one support worker and other times two support mm -hmm. workers. So a massive reduction in the in his supervision, if you like, because he now lives in an environment that means his behaviours aren't anywhere near uh, as challenging as they were previously. So just fantastic outcome. It, it is. When, when I met you, it's um, quite a few years ago now, Brent, and you were a consulting engineer. You were a parent of uh, um, two twins, and they must have been 11 or 12. And you talked about wanting to get into um, more actively in the disability support sector. And I had my doubts that you would be one of those parents that would be able to generalize past the needs of their own son or daughter. And you've turned out to be awesome in your ability to look at systems and systemic change. And I just wonder about that journey for you in a sense of you, you're an engineer, you're a parent, and you hit this wacky, evolving NDIS. SDA is equally wacky and evolving within it. And you go on the ride and you learn so much and you're so generous. You offer so much um, pro bono work. You're still doing two full-time jobs. You're generous of spirit and you're good at the systemic stuff. Can you reflect a bit on how how you were able to do that, how you were able to immerse yourself so much in this sector that you weren't really part of? Yeah, sure. And first, thanks for the um, compliment. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny because um, I assume at some point my wife will hear this and she'll probably have a very different opinion um, to what I'm about to say because at times it's been um, challenging for her, I think, just because of um, the level of commitment I feel to the sector. And I think for me, it's, I've always felt this real weight of responsibility. Um, I don't like being one of the people that sit back and throw rocks at something that, that may not be um, going as well for them as they think it should be. Uh, and I guess it can be one put down to one of those male traits of, you know, always wanting to find the solution. But I've always had that sort of feeling that to make something better, you've got to get in and really understand it. And then from a sy systemic perspective, actually try to influence what happens. And I think, you know, the NDIS is the biggest social change in Australia for forever, pretty much. And obviously having a son that, has disability um, just makes it even that more personal for me to, to make sure as the NDIS evolves that it evolves into the best possible system it can be for people with disability. You've only got one shot at it. Yeah. I remember you telling me that you're, you're one of those people that likes to sit in bed at night reading manuals <laughs> and legislation and regulation. You'll actually eat the detail. And the detail in the SDAs, um, Specialist Disability Accommodation and SIL, which are both your areas, is 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 beyond me I, I kept up with it for about three or four years and then i let go of it for about six months and i'm no longer on top of the detail of the sda i wonder if but if you could do a little bit of the most common question apparently um, financial advisors are being asked at the moment is what's the value of real estate doing and and <laughs> can you give us some insight into where you think the sda property market's going over the next couple of years given you 
I'll give you my insights that I think that the other market, the the broader property market's in deep trouble. That's not an insight. It's obvious. Where's SDA going? Yeah, I think SDA, you know, over the last three months, there's definitely been probably the greatest level of that initial um, inquiry. So from people that um, we've had, DSC have had no visibility of previously and then a phone call or an email will come in saying, oh, you know, I want to learn more about SDA. Can, can you help? And that's no doubt being driven by that um, likelihood that the, the mainstream real estate market's going to suffer for the next couple of years. Hopefully not as bad as everyone's predicting, but obviously there's going to be something happens. And so I think there are a lot of people that are turning to SDA to understand a little bit more. And so look, I, I think SDA overall, it's been a really slow journey and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it's slower than it probably should be. But it's also better than this mad panic and all these really bad properties being built in bad locations um, because once it's built, that's it. You know, once we reach the, the number of, of rooms that are required, um, that's it. So I think taking it slowly and making sure it's done properly is not necessarily a bad thing. Just want to jump in, quick catch up in case you're not familiar with SDA. SDA is Specialist Disability Accommodation. It's a payment towards the bricks and mortar for super accessible housing. And it's a part of the NDIS's effort to increase the stock of accessible housing in Australia. And it's only... um, 28,000 out of the 460,000 participants. So it's only... About 6% of NDIS participants will receive an SDA payment in their plan. One of the more interesting things too about SDA, Brent, and... I get the sense from you and probably don't want to comment on it further, but the last 12 months, it's coming together. It's starting to work. And I'd be interested in hear your comments on that. But you're also dealing with the very pointy end. Like you said, you get a bunch of um, pretty um, weird people ringing up saying, <laughs> I want to build a house in my backyard, or I'm going to build a block of 10 flats, or I'm going to... You get a lot of that um, um, numb nuts developers um, that want to yep. do stuff and are clueless and you seem to have endless patience for those people. <laughs> um, um, t- 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 tell us about it. That's where I think it, that's where I feel that weight of responsibility that I was talking about um, just a few minutes ago. Uh, so at times I've been criticised by some people by being a little bit too purist um, and potentially not embracing new entrants into the SDA market as well as I should and, you know, potentially turning people off investing in the SDA market. So there's that friction point, if you like, between we need this accommodation, but the other side of that is it's got to be done properly. You know, at the moment, I would say the vast majority of SDA has been done really, really well, but there's still... um, a certain portion of it being built almost on a speculative manner by people that haven't really spent the time to understand the sector and how an SDA project fits together. And they're building in some really, really stupid locations. So Mm. they're going to be, if they're fortunate enough from their perspective to actually find residents to, to move into the SDA, these residents are going to be completely isolated from their community, which is just not acceptable to me in terms of an SDA outcome. So, Brent, you, you are a super generous person. 
you own an, a part own an engineering business, you work full time with us, more than full time with us, and then in your free time, you manage to do pro bono work. You don't talk about the pro bono work. I bet most of the consultants at DSC don't even know you do pro bono. But can you tell us a little bit about what gets you out of the house on a Saturday morning other than the family needing to have you out? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. And look, it does come back to um, that that sense of if something's broken, don't just stand back and, and complain about it. And because I'm from Queensland and pre-NDIS disability support and the sector in Queensland, it was just dreadful. Um, so leading into the NDIS, I was just so fortunate to have connected with DSC and have this amazing team of people around me that so... I won't tell you about our first planning meeting now. That's that's a different story. But needless to say, I was pretty well prepared for it and knew how to play the game. But going through that process of preparing for that first planning meeting, it was difficult for me, despite the fact that I was surrounded by all these experts and you know I could ask questions, et cetera, et cetera. And so it just occurred to me that there'd be so many people out there that just by no fault of their own um, would just not have a clue about what to do um, in preparation for a planning meeting, what to ask for in the planning meeting. Um, and so that really drove me to say, look, I've, I've got to do something. So reached out to some organisations that I had a good relationship with and just said, look, here's my details. You get a minimum of 20, 30 people together. Uh, the first Saturday of every month, I'll donate my time um, free of charge to go and talk to those people to actually give them some sort of NDIS 101. This is what you need to be doing. This is how it works, etc. So that's kind of dropped off now, obviously, because a lot of people are now in this game. So I've sort of transitioned my time now to more around housing. So helping families that otherwise wouldn't have the means to engage a, a big consulting company to help them out, um, just to give them some guidance about this is what it is, this is how it works, and this is the process you need to go through and connecting them with people that, that will hopefully help them along that journey. But how, what does Nate think about his dad being so involved in the disability sector? Oh, look, I, I think he thinks it's pretty cool at times um, that we are relatively, you know, we're pretty good at navigating the NDIS and um, he's got some great outcomes um, from his NDIS package and and definitely has changed his outlook um you know if the ndis wasn't here his outlook as it came he was sort of in those final years of school um his outlook would have been nowhere near as positive as it is now so i think he's pretty happy that we've been able to get such good outcomes and relatively quickly etc etc um but nate nate's a funny one because if, if there's ever a person that, and in his words, hates being disabled, it's him. And that's probably for him. It's, I, I'd, much, I'd be much happier if dad wasn't involved in the disability sector because he's involved because of me. It's mm -hmm. kind of his attitude. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So our, our producer, Mayor Thomas, um, insisted to ask you about the twins' graduation, which was just last year, wasn't it, from high school? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Mayor. You're going to get me crying now. Um, <laughs> so um, 
twins, so I'll, I'll give them a name instead of the twins. So Sebastian and Nathaniel, or Nate, and Nate, as you know, has cerebral palsy. So, um, yeah, it was the graduation was an incredibly, you know, just a beautiful event. Um, really emotional, but I think that emotion was a mix of just, you know, wow, we got here. Um, which I think if, you know, if there's any parents of, of children, young adults with disability that have um, had that disability for a long portion of their life will understand that, you know, navigating early childhood, navigating education, um, all of those things are just exhausting and, and a battle. You know, typically it's, it's not, and we had, you know, obviously identical twins. So you've got that constant comparison that, you know, yes, Sebastian can just go on and roll and do this and he can do this and he can do that. Whereas everything with Nate was, oh, how are we going to make that work and what problems are there going to be and et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, just getting to that event. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the actual graduation evening, the emotion was a mix of just a typical parent just being proud and a bit of exhaustion just going, my God, it didn't need to be that hard. But, you know, we got here in the end. And I think in some ways that drives that pro bono work that I like doing to help families that the number of families that you meet, and this isn't just Queensland, and as you guys would know, you know, you just meet people that are in absolute distress, um, yeah. not coping you know, can't really see a path out of their misery or whatever they're experiencing. But it's there. And I think having been through that process now um, and got out the other end of it, I, I do want to help people sort of navigate that, that pathway because, you know, there's really great outcomes. And, and while we're talking about the boys, Brent, I just want you to um, remember a couple of years ago, we're standing in front of an audience of about 150 people, you and I are on stage, and I ask you this deep and meaningful question about having um, twin boys, 15, 16 years old at that stage, and the seeing the difference between them, one with disability and one without, and I asked you, you know, what did that difference mean to you? Do you remember, do you remember your answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I get reminded of the answer quite quite a lot. So the answer was primarily, yes, sure. Um, identical twins, one with significant disability, one without. Um, so you initially think, wow, there's going to be all these real differences. But ultimately, they're both turds. They're both <laughs> late, late teenage boys that think they know everything. Um, obviously, you know, uh, going through various stages of life and exploring girlfriends and relationships and alcohol and whatever else. Um, but yeah, they're, they're literally from what I call the turdyish aspect <laughs> are, are exactly the same. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of difference when you, when you really boil it down. Brent, we've spoken to you sometimes and you talk about the difficulty of being a parent, not parent of a kid with disability, just, you know, difficulties of being a parent. And that in some ways inspired you to write a book quite a while ago. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, the motivation for the book 
came when I was sitting in my furnished apartment that I'd moved out um, when my first marriage fell apart, which was when the boys were about three, three and a half years old. And obviously having to, for the, for the marriage to end and, and having a lot of spare time when I wasn't at work, I just got thinking about, you know, what, what happened? Because everything was just a blur from, from when the boys were, were initially born premature. So I started doing a bit of reading, um, trying to get my head around, just trying to understand a bit about what was going on. And it became really obvious that particularly for males, um, there was nothing out there in terms of, you know, um, typical male, I'd like to do a Google search saying, you know, my child's just been diagnosed with cerebral palsy. What the fuck do I do? Um, and there was no response. There's nothing. And I just thought, wow, that, that, that's not good. Um, because there's going to be thousands of other people, um, just like me sitting in their service department, wondering what the fuck just happened. So, I started gathering together information and research that I could find, mixed it with my own thoughts. And um, over a period of about 18 months, it it turned into a book that I called Fracture. And the title Fracture came from comparing um, your life and the moment when, for our, in my experience, it was walking into the um, intensive care, neonative intensive care, and being told by a doctor that um, your child's got brain damage and is likely to have cerebral palsy. And I liken that point, that exact moment in time, to a person, you know, if, if suffering a fracture of a bone and how you treat that fracture from that exact point in time when it happens depends, you know, it absolutely determines the outcome. You do what you should do, then the fracture grows. It's actually stronger than it ever was and everything keeps going great. If you ignore it and kind of don't seek the right advice around it, et cetera, et cetera, it won't heal. Um, and, in fact, it will get worse and um, everything will, will fall apart. And that's that's where I got the, the title fracture from. And it is, as I said, very much focused at helping us very unusual males um, at that point in time when um, potentially a child with disability is introduced into your life. We'll, we'll uh, make it available because you've got it online, haven't you, Brent? We can make it avail- available through Yeah, yeah. It, all seriousness, it, it literally, my motivation was just if it helps one dad um, understand their reactions to um, the news about a child having a disability or, or not all, and um, understanding how their wife is going to respond because that that lack of understanding in, in people's responses um, causes the fracture. So while we're prodding around in, inside your personality, you're not just a consultant, you also do a lot of other things, one of which is you're a presenter with us. You present a lot of workshops, a lot of webinars, and I asked Evie, who's um, the manager of that area in our business, what's your favourite thing about Brent as a presenter? Yeah, I've told you this, Brent, but I love the way you combine being every Aussie bloke and this staunch human <laughs> rights advocate. <laughs> and so you'll be talking about human rights, but you'll be doing it in a way that's like, well, it just seems like the right thing to do, so we did it. 
<laughs> and I love that. About <laughs> I love it. It's so easy to, to hear what you're saying. It doesn't feel, you know, it's like, yeah, cool. Let's do that then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, I very much look at it as, okay, we've, we've got the NDIS and it's fantastic. We've got in the NDIS SDA, which is also fantastic. We've got a support system, um, SIL, supported independent living, that um, fortunately, unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, goes hand in hand with SDA at this point in time. But the way I approach it is that's what we've got. We don't have anything different at this point in time. And what we've got is so much better than what existed five years ago. So let's make what we've got work the best it possibly can whilst not losing sight of the big game and that's the human rights game to make sure that we don't just settle for god if it isn't perfect but let's make sure that we're using what we've got right now and making sure that we're absolutely delivering the maximum benefit we possibly can to people with disability and then as this you know increasing undercurrent drive the human rights side of it and say right this is good, but it needs to be better. And this is how it can be better. And let's go and do it. And, you know, I think, I think we're getting there. It's, it's just going to be a long journey. I want to just ask one more question, Brent, which is about COVID. And you, you and I have had a number of discussions where uh, I th- I, I'll speak about myself. I found COVID extraordinarily difficult at times. I was, I was drinking way too much to the state now where I've just stopped drinking altogether. It's the only way I can cope. I know you found it tough too. Do you, can you share anything with us about your, your COVID journey? Yeah, look, I think um, for me it was that a couple of things. So the restriction, obviously, um, was was really difficult to, to come to terms with, I guess. I've always been, as my, my lovely wife Jackie would say, um, I sort of live my life a thousand miles an hour with my pants on fire. <laughs> and, and that um, COVID didn't allow me to keep doing that. So I had to slow down. I didn't have any choice. And and for me, that was something I hadn't done for forever, <laughs> for a long time. And um, I, I didn't know how. And like you, Roland, I, I, I think I was drinking more than I, well, I know I was drinking more than I should have been. Um, and yeah, look, it was far more difficult than I'd ever anticipated and you know i really feel for you guys having to go through 2.0 that that's something that i'm dreading yeah we're not laughing that one off it's um it is it's hard it's really uh it's been interesting as well because one of the um if i put my parent hat on and nate's ndis participant hat on and for someone that was in that first year post completion of school um the response to COVID for a lot of organisations and obviously have had to, you know, shut down um, all sorts of services that they were offering that congregated people with disability. Um, yeah. It's it's really had a quite a dramatic impact on um, options for Nate in terms of, you know, SLEDs, um, skills training, all of those different sort of opportunities that the NDIS is graciously funding for school leavers to try to um, develop a, a real future and it's really been limiting for him um, and that's been tough on on all of us I've heard, I've heard that a lot from parents of um, adolescents and older younger adults of um, people with disability that are really 
they're really filling the pointy end and you're helping me understand it a bit better, Brent. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that, it's been, it's been tough for him because he, as you know, Nate loves, he's involved in a university sponsored swimming program to try to get some Australians up to Olympic qualifying standard to, because Australia's Paralympic team does not have any Paralympic swimmers above or below whichever way you want to look at it, um, what they call a, a level seven, which for a level seven disability, it means, you know, you might have a sore finger as opposed to, you know, level ones and twos, which are significant cerebral palsy, you know, triple amputees, et cetera, et cetera. So he's been doing that program for three years and it was really, it, that was his baseline of, of his life. Um, lots of training each week, lots of social activities, et cetera, et cetera, and that stopped um, at the same time as everything else stopped. And so, yeah, that it was really tough for him to um, to go from being pretty active to staring at staring at himself in the mirror, or unfortunately, staring at a computer screen most of the day. Can you tell us quickly about the social enterprise you and he are setting up? Yeah, sure. So. Um, the social enterprise came about from looking at options for Nate post-school and what's out there. And what I, the, the terminology I use is I want a career path or a future for Nate that's real. Um, I don't want a role or a, uh, an opportunity that's fabricated around Nate's disability. I want there to be an opportunity that if it's Nate or if it's his brother or someone else that doesn't have a disability could equally engage with that opportunity and get a, a great outcome from engaging with that opportunity. So we just stumbled across the idea of, you know, like most young people, Nate's pretty active on social media. And I thought, well, I wonder, you know, there's lots of small companies out there, lots of small businesses, the local takeaway, the, hairdresser, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that probably all have some form of social media presence. They're probably pretty bad at it. They don't keep it updated enough. Um, I wonder if there's a way there's an opportunity there for Nate to develop a social enterprise that offers small businesses uh, social media management um, service. And so we were fortunate enough in partnership with Wesley Mission Queensland to actually get an ILC grant to do a feasibility study. So we approached a bunch of local organisations to gauge their interest if they'd like to participate in the feasibility, wouldn't cost them anything apart from a bit of time. Ended up getting about 30 businesses interested. Um, cut a long story short, ran the feasibility and it's feasible on a fully commercial basis. Um, to provide people with quite significant levels of disability, a real job um, doing real work for real organisations in a real commercial environment. And it's in an industry that has a real future. So it's kind of a win all round. So yeah, that's something I've been pretty passionate about doing in my spare time. So we've been talking to Brent Woolgar, Candid Conversations. Thank you, Brent, coming to us from Queensland, a very different state to, in a very different state to um, where Victoria is at at the moment. Thank you so much, Brent. That, that's been great. It's been really good talking to you today. Thanks, Brent.
thanks Roland and Evie. It's been great to to talk through all these different things. It's been awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Cool. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, and we've been speaking with our wonderful principal consultant, Brent Woolgar. If you want to head over to the show notes, you can find a link to his book if you want to check that out, and also a link to DSC's new training offering called Fora, which is a subscription-based, self-paced e-learning and webinar library. We're really proud of it. Check it out. (laughs) 